When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello there, this is Bruce Daisley, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Uh, you can get all of the previous episodes on the website. But I've also been trying to uh, put articles on LinkedIn, if you want to link into me, or on Twitter. We've got a Twitter profile, which is uh, you'll get by f- searching Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I recorded an audio book last weekend, and uh, you'll be able to download that. You'll be able to have that for January, uh, Blue Monday. So look forward to that. It's considerably slower. I mean, I personally listen to audiobooks and and podcasts on 1.8 speed. And I think if you sort of, if you download that, I'm probably going to sound normal if you do it on 1.8 speed. It's considerably slower. Basically because all the stumbles and things that I get away with here, um, I can't get away with on an audiobook. Uh, But look forward to that if you're interested. Now... Uh, this today's episode was sort of inspired by a discussion with Seth Godin. I don't know if you listened to Seth Godin last week, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I was really thinking about how you could change the culture in organisations by the way you engineer choices available to people. And so today I'm speaking to a behavioural scientist about these things. Now, first, a bit of background. We discuss a reading list in the show, and I've included it in the show notes, but it's worth giving you an intro Behavioural science is certainly one of the things that's been popularised in the last decade or so, work by people, I guess originated by work by people like uh, Robert Cialdini, but then subsequently made very popular by people like Daniel Kahneman. And one of the best books I love on it is Yes by Noah Goldstein, Steve Martin and, and Robert Cialdini. And in that book, they spend chapter after chapter going through how the language we use to, to invite people to do things has a big impact on what they subsequently do. So TV shopping channels used to say operators are waiting to take your call. And they realised that that combination of words made customers envisage sort of rows of idle call handlers waiting for any sucker to buy something. So they changed it to... If lines are busy, please try again later. Why? Because it sort of conjures this image of a hurry. It sort of summons the notion that you need to phone now because lines might be busy. And similarly, hotels have sort of evolved the notes that you might see if you go into hotel bathrooms about towels. Uh, They've sort of evolved those notes. A lot of these things are sort of based on the principles of influence made famous by Robert Cialdini. So in that book, yes, the one I mentioned, the authors split hotel rooms. 
Half with a note saying, please recycle your towel by hanging it up. And the other half used social proof by saying, most guests at our hotel help the environment by reusing their towels. So really simple sort of decision architecture. Then they looked at the results. The people who got the social proof message were 26% more likely to recycle their towel. And they found they could even improve upon this. Firstly, by using principles of reciprocation. So saying the hotel would make a donation if they reused the towel. To, to, to even go further than that using reciprocation, they said, to thank you, we've already made a donation in your name. They found that decision architecture could be made incredibly specific as well. Maybe you're saying, staying in a certain sort of room and by adding specificity to it, by saying the majority of people who use this room reuse their towel, they were able to increase it further still. So if decision architecture can play a part in, in these things, can it make an impact on work? So there might already be a bit of decision architecture around your office. Maybe there are waste paper bins that are sort of moved further away and then encouraging you to use recycle bins now. We're starting to see more decision architecture. Jez Groom, today's guest, is someone who specialises in it. Jez Groom runs the behavioural science company Cowdery Consulting and there's a link to them in the show notes. He told me at his old company, Ogilvy, he used to work with Rory Sutherland at Ogilvy, they realised they could make big breakthroughs in these areas when they started experimenting. So he was telling me about, I think it was a food manufacturer plant, where they, no matter how much they told workers to wash their hands, whether it was about spreading germs when they got home or whether it was transferring dirt onto the product, only 60% of workers were doing it. So Jez and his team created an idea where they they created this sort of brown coloured sort of poo coloured stamp that they stamped onto people's hand that was looked look like an E. coli virus bug basically the truth of it is it took 30 seconds to wash off and in that 30 seconds people would have completed a thorough washing of their hands when they did that the bacterial count tumbled but they they only did the intervention for three weeks Effectively, after three weeks, they, they carried on testing people's hands and the stamp had actually changed people's behaviour. So you can sort of architect these changes in behavioural patterns by doing these small interventions. And what Jez and his company, Cowdery Consulting, want to know, and what people in this field want to know is, can we actually change work culture by doing these interventions? And what are the interventions that are going to help? Really interesting discussion. At the end, we... we consider uh, some books that you might want to read if you'd want to take this further so here we go here's Jess Groom so Jess I, I was interested in chatting to you because you're a behavioral economist and I think what's become clear to me is sort of finding someone who can architect changes in culture inside organizations as well as you know we hear about advertisers or hotels or other organizations using behavioral economics but I wanted to know if it could apply within the world of work within workplaces and I thought oh it's not happened anywhere yet and then I chatted to you and it seems that's your business to some extent so I was interested do you want to explain who you are and what you do before we start um, yes uh, my name is Jez Groom um, I'm the founder of Cowrie Consulting so we're an applied behavioral economics consultancy and uh, I think what's sort of fascinating is that as you mentioned I'm a former ad guy but um, I see that as my first career because I don't really interact with anybody in advertising or marketing that much anymore um, a lot of our work is about people problems and how people have got a certain set of behaviours which isn't of their 
interest generally, but maybe not of another organisation, either their employer or, or a company that's asking them to do something, um, and solve those problems utilising this new toolkit that, that we've got, and solve it in very, very creative ways, sometimes very oblique um, and tangential ways. So you, you described to me, you said a scenario where someone might come along to you with a problem, and the problem might be that you know they, they need to change... Uh, they need to change how people are doing things. So I think in the first instance, you mentioned to me um, probation officers trying to get people to to their customers, the people there who are on probation, trying to change their reactions. Is that right? Was that, Am I close yeah. on that one? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's really good. So the interesting thing about, about this line of work is, you know, there's people problems everywhere and never more so, yeah, with the probation service. You know, there's some really, some quite radical behaviour change that needs to happen in those instances. Now, we're not trained probation officers, you know, we're behavioural scientists. But some of the very, very basic principles are how do you get somebody um, who's on probation, so they call them service user. So how do you get a service user to essentially attend their appointments with their case manager? And, and how do you communicate with them? And what's really, really interesting is that when you look at the way that uh, people talk to service users or case managers and the literature and the way that they get them to turn up these appointments, it's just not designed particularly well. They may well uh, get a letter and the letter is quite boring. Um, it's black and white. It's a three paragraphs of dense text. Hidden in there is what you want them to do, what time you want them to turn up and what's going to happen. And, and they never read it. So they miss their appointment just because it's not been designed that well. And if they miss their appointment and they keep missing an appointment, there are severe consequences. They go back to jail. So whilst we're not probation officers, we're essentially helping these probation officer case managers help their service users interact with them in ways which make sure that they stay on the correct line. And so someone comes to you because they're thinking, OK, if we get someone who knows how to create decision architecture and, and sort of force them to, to do something. So in that case there, what's the intervention that you would design? Yeah, so, so this is what we have designed. And um, so uh, if you want people to make a diary appointment um, in their mental diary or in their phone diary or in their, their written diary, then design it so it looks like a diary appointment, right. not a letter. Right. Okay. Now, the interesting thing is that, and it, it befuddles me, completely befuddles me, is that when we design things utilising word processing using 1980s language, but utilising the design uh, ability that we have now, why are we constrained by the limitations of a typewriter? So when you ask people to write a letter to someone, they write it as if they were doing it on something which is metal, which is putting ink, which is constrained by the keys of the typewriter. Explain what that means. So, so... Um, so when you write a letter, this is how people think about letters. They have an address at the top, they have a date, a dear sir or madam, a load of text and then a sign off saying thank you very much. Right. Um, and, um, and that's not the way that the way the brain works. It likes words, and, um, but it likes pictures a lot more. So if you show them a picture of a diary appointment with their name in that diary appointment and it's already been made for them, then essentially their brain goes, there's a diary appointment there, it's in my name, and it's already been made for next Tuesday. Right, right. I'll put it in my diary. As opposed to, dear sir or madam, you know, we've been talking to you over numerous occasions and you haven't responded. It would be really helpful for us if you would make a note of this into your diary. Right. The next diary appointment that we have is on Tuesday, the 22nd of October. October at 10, uh, 10 a.m. If you don't do this, there will be severe consequences. Yeah. And people find that hard to engage with. Right. Especially in this audience where, you know, the levels of literacy may not, not be as high in some instances, the, the level of interaction. I mean, they're not always positive interactions. I mean, you're on probation. 
So, you know, getting these reminders about the fact that you've got to continually to be adhering to drug rehabilitation, alcohol re rehabilitation, community service, it's a lot of demand. So, you know, it's quite common. That Did people, it work? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what we're finding is that a combination of those letters um, have been very, very well received by the service users and also the case managers. So that interaction is better. And what we're finding is when uh, they're having conversations about these things, which have also redesigned, um, that um, when they're, I suppose, interacting, you know, they might say, actually, I can't do Tuesday at 10 because I've got a doctor's appointment. They then have to ring up essentially, you know, a traditional contact centre, which deals with these sort of queries. And um, so when they deal with these uh, queries in terms of a language, the same language they see on the letter is mirrored in the conversation that, that they're having. And what we found is that a lot of these appointments um, have been resolved um, it, the first time that they interact. It's like up by 112%. So, you know, if they're trying to change things or move things or think things around um, because they don't you know, understand it or it's been they can't actually make it. What we, we've been doing is redesigning that whole experience such that it's resolved really quickly and easily. Yeah. And, and that has been resolved 112% uh, higher than it was previously utilising these very, very simple but quite clever techniques. Yeah, and I just think it sounds to me just like using the the language that people understand from modern life, you know. So, so you know, it's, it's a bit like films wrestling with the problem of how to put text messages in like you've, you've, you if you're not going to put it in you're not telling an accurate story about modern life right so you need to find a way to put text on the screen yours is similar you can't do something that looks like the way that it was done 50 years ago so, so the interesting bizarre thing is is you're absolutely right and absolutely wrong right. as i guess um, because a lot of the ways that uh, we're designing things are not based on the way we do things in modern life they've actually been hardwired into our brains from when we were cave women and cave men right. so you know cave men and cave women didn't use language they used pictures right and you know what they saw and how they communicated was old and visually you know and the, the psychological literature says that we process images at 13 milliseconds we essentially can read words at 300 milliseconds and actually process them cognitively at 400 milliseconds so imagine the pace of change you see a diary appointment you instantly know it's for your diary in 13 milliseconds as opposed to being especially in a barrage of text and actually taking you know in that case you know 10 20 30 like a quantum difference to understand it all by a millisecond so i think that that's the key the key difference i think is that a lot of the things that we do are based on psychological principles which have been hardwired for thousands if not millions yeah. of years so you're exactly right you know it is about contemporizing what we used to do in the past for the for the future modern life here you go then so, you, so you're doing that for a profession and then people come along to you and so the problems aren't people on probation or whatever the way the, the new modern world yeah. but they are employees at a firm so you know i think the one you mentioned to me was a building site yes. so perennial challenge you know it's not a a, a white collar job but perennial challenge trying to get people to abide by the health and safety rules in a building site so Tell me what that problem might look like and then how you'd set about using behavioural economics to solve that. Um, yeah, so, um, so I suppose the first thing would be um, 
you know, when we use language, it creates an availability bias in our brains for a certain type of thing. So I just want to reframe that. So, so a building site, you know, instantly people think about an extension on a house, maybe. Um, and the building sites, we were kind of construction sites. Right. So these are, you know, projects that are worth 50 or 100 million pounds. And the particular project that we were working on was the refurbishment of a major, major headquarters in London on the South Bank. And essentially, they, this business goes in and they rip out all of the, the old stuff. Um, so the ceilings and the floors and all the stuff that sits in between, um, like chairs and the meeting rooms, take all that away. And then they then refit and refurb. Um, and it's all that beautiful stuff that you often see in banks. So, you know, it may well be some beautiful, you know, Italian marble floors with, with uh, glass, you know, beautiful stairways, etc. So it's a big fit out company. And um, so the problem that they have, which is, is a perennial problem, is that um, on these types of, of sites is that the levels of, uh, I suppose, accidents is really quite low now. So, you know, within the UK, it's amazing, the UK, it's really, really a pioneer in this space. So, so you know, for, for someone to have, a, you know, a severe accident or, or even a fatality on site, it, it's un, unheard of, you know, in the UK. So what we look at is not necessarily accidents, but it's essentially unsafe behaviours. Because, you know, as people often document, if you get a series of uh, sort of triangulation of different interactions, such as someone's got an unsafe behaviour, it's happened at this time of day where this unusual thing also happened, you get a triangulation which can escalate into a serious accident. So what we were tackling was unsafe behaviours. And, um, and the t specific types were when people are working at height. So um, the things like ladders don't exist within these construction sites. They're dangerous ladders. They can fall over. They're not very strong. Um, they're not very stable. Um, what they tend to have is like scaffolding platforms that they can move around right. with wheels on. Um, and they have really quite sophisticated ones, which may well have um, hydraulics, but also wheels. They can drive around, so they're quite big. But that allows them to go up and down, sometimes over 100 times a day, going to the ceiling, coming back down, fitting lights, fitting air conditioning. But what they find is that there's a series of small behaviours within that, such as, um, you know, if you're moving a platform around um, 100 times a day, uh, you might not lock the wheels. Which sounds crazy. Why would you go something that's four metres high without locking the wheels on it that essentially could move, move around? Or you might not shut the gate behind you. So if you did fall off, then essentially you might fall through the gate at the top and land at the bottom. Um, sometimes they might struggle to get to maybe something that's two metres away. So they overstretch and lean over the side of it rather than going down, unlocking the wheels and gate, moving it, locking the wheels and gate, and then do it. So they'll overstretch. So there was a number of quite small and safe behaviours, but you can imagine a situation if you've got the wheels unlocked with a locked and gate, you then overstretch, you could easily fall through the gate, you know, and, and the, the whole platform could move and you'd injure yourself, maybe injure other people. So those were the essentially the deadly sins, if you like, that we, we tackled. Um, so we went through a process, uh, which is a simple scientific process, which is one of understanding the environment that we're working in. So diagnosing the problem. Why are these things happening? Why don't these men lock the gates? It's crazy, right? And why wouldn't you lock a gate behind you when you're four meters up? Um, and then identifying uh, how we might redesign the environment uh, to make it more conducive to them to get the lock the gate, lock the wheels, whatever it might be. And then conduct an experiment to prove that our hypothesis and our assumptions work in the real world. Um, so I don't think any of that is necessarily a new paradigm. You know, it's quite, quite basic science. But I think where what's interesting is uh, the application of science and design with proven experimentation uh, 
uh, design, it gets you to a really good result that just can't be disputed. And I think that's the exciting bit. So, so we went through that process. So the type of insights you start to, to generate would be that um, when you look at the workforce of a construction uh, site like this, it tends to be kind of two age groups, predominantly male. So not exclusively, but predominantly male for this, because it's quite labour-intensive, yeah. intensive work. And um, tends to be two types. So a 25-year-old guy, you know, and um, very, very strong, good core strength, moving around quite a lot of materials up and down, physically, physically uh, very, very fit. And then you also get a, a sort of 50-year-old, some guy that's essentially been doing this for quite a long time, generally has the younger guys that's working for him, that manages them, but also does some of the more expert work him, himself. Now, the interesting thing about both of those guys is that they are guys. So their testosterone levels are quite high. Higher, you know, than other professions yeah. and maybe other, other yeah. sexes, you know. So, so it's quite, quite interesting just as a natural base, you know. So we know that testosterone starts to cruise around 21, 22. And we know that testosterone makes us more prone to taking risks, yeah. you know. Uh, and um, so that's quite interesting that you've got a very, very male-oriented environment, a very, very male, uh, I suppose, uh, work discipline with, with age group 25 where people are cresting. But the interesting thing is that the 50-year-olds, whilst their testosterone levels and core strength aren't as high, they actually have similar sort of uh, risk profiles because if they've not been injured before, and they have adopted these unsafe behaviours, then the brain has told them that that's okay. Right. Which sounds crazy. Yeah. So imagine, it sounds crazy, but not. So imagine you've been doing this thing for 30 years, you've cut a few corners and you've never been injured. Your brain tells yourself that that's okay. Yeah. So we had the same sort of problems with both 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 the, of these guys. And when you layer, you know, busyness and, and meeting deadlines, uh, etc., then essentially some of those testosterone levels can, can go, go quite high. Then you get the fact that everybody's maybe doing these things. Yeah. That normalises yeah, that, the norm, that, that yeah, behaviour. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing really to stop you. Um, so there's nothing really to stop you not locking the gate, etc. So, so that was kind of the, quite a lot of the problems. And, and that's everywhere. It wasn't specific to our site. It's just, just generally within construction, those, those sorts of themes. So we presented that back. And then we then worked with, which I think was um, some of the genius of the ways that we work with clients, is we actually started to uh, build some concepts but then we then got into um, more of a sharing uh, a mind sort of session where we bring together the electricians, the plumbers, the asbestos removal, some of those sub-operatives, along with the health and safety people. And we then start to, I suppose, bring them into the world of behavioural science and say that sometimes uh, people's behaviour can be changed by subconscious uh, factors. And we think that's relevant for you. Take them on that journey and then get them to buy into that first and foremost, but then get us to essentially start to help build with us some of these solutions um, to ensure that they are complicit because some of the solutions are very oblique and lateral and people don't believe you and they don't want to be attached to them you know I think it's fair to say there was one or two people that were heavily skeptical and even started to distance themselves from the project when we came to the end concepts which I think is interesting about reputational risk yeah. versus maybe maybe net gain for employees and yeah no one wants to recommend something that looks crazy right yeah I mean it's funny you know so everyone wants innovation but no one wants to do it first yeah you know, you know, it's that, it's that classic. Um, so we came up with uh, six concepts. Um, and we stress tested them, utilising subjective, some quantitative sort of, sort of things. You know, will this work? How much does it cost? What potential has it got? What, how scalable is it? What resources does it require? What the time and constraints? Stress tested the ideas on that basis and went forward with three ideas. Um, and we ran with three 
um, in a phased approach um, on uh, this particular site, which was a three-year project. Um, we did a baseline measurement for four weeks to understand you know, what type of work was going on and what the unsafe behaviour level was. Um, and then we then introduced these three interventions. So the, the three interventions kind of, kind of all work together. Um, so one of the problems that we have is we don't know which one was the strongest, um, but we do know the combination of all three worked. Um, and um, so from an academic perspective, it's fundamentally flawed. Um, from a business perspective, an employee's perspective, a huge tick, okay? because it's very, very applied. So the first thing we did was something very, very simple. Um, and this was using the bribe of a bacon sandwich okay. or a bacon butty, which is the most powerful bribe right. in the world of Currency. construction. Yeah, 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 indeed. Which essentially was um, a weekly walk around for you as an in individual, where essentially you would come out of your job uh, for, the, for the morning on the promise of a bacon butty, but you would be a health and safety executive for the day. Um, and uh, essentially you would be alongside one of the health and safety executives, you would be going around monitoring uh, the work of your fellow colleagues and other people in other suboperatives. And when you observed a poor behaviour, you would then call it out and then go through a, a scripted sort of interview about why they did the things that they did. Now, the and do they know each other? Because I would have thought you wouldn't want to dig out your mate would you? So, so yeah, so it's so one of the interesting things about, about construction, um, uh, I think, is, um, you know, which is a common thing, is no, no one wants to be a grass. Right. No one wants to be a grass. Um, and, um, but I think, I think that's changing. So not, this isn't our idea, but I'd heard it from uh, a consultant and, uh, before about um, the way that you get around the grass thing is essentially um, if you uh, create a culture, which means that it's okay to grass, which essentially uh, means if, if I see you, Bruce, observing a port, you know, doing something you shouldn't be at work, essentially I can call that out, okay. um, but we are both protected from any in further implications. Okay. All we're doing is making the workplace safer. And I think I think that's the difference. Right. I think a lot. So of there's no blame. There's to no the blame. Individual. There's no blame. There's no consequences because all we've done is something positive, which is you've done something that wasn't unsafe. I've called it out, and together we're going to be safe in the future, as well with the rest of the company. So, so I think that has been in the ether, and certainly within the the health and safety uh, sort of culture, is, seems to be growing. Which is yeah, essentially no consequences for doing bad things. It can only be a good thing. Um, and uh, so I think I think I think the grass thing has been take, taken out a little bit. Um, but what it does do, going back to the, to the walk around, is it creates dissonance in, in your own mind, or in this case, the suboperative's mind. Because imagine if you're in a situation where you're walking around telling all your fellow colleagues that they're doing things wrong, and this is how they should do them right in the future, and wouldn't that be a great thing? And then the next day, you then go back to your old behaviours of doing it the wrong way. So not only will you feel a bit embarrassed, because people might say, hang on, Jez, you did the the wrong thing today but you told me yesterday to do the right thing but it also creates distance in your own brain because essentially we like to be consistent with our previous actions so if we spent the whole day telling people to do things right the fact that we're doing it wrong creates distance in our own mind you know so it's a very simple intervention it doesn't cost much money at all and, and so you got the bacon sandwich for so being the sandwich. monitor for the day yeah exactly yeah right and you know so, that's so it wasn't a reward, reward for doing it well it was a reward, it was just a reward for yeah essentially the reward for taking part in the exercise okay. but the behavioral science essentially was create this distance in people's minds now now, behavioural science isn't a silver bullet that works 100% of the time. So for sure, there are some people that would happily go and tell people, you know, to do it one day and the next day, totally disregard it, for sure. But for most people, most of the time, they do like to be consistent with their previous actions and they do like to, to, to avoid dissonance. And, and this is one measure. So we started off with that, which was really easy. 
The second one we did, I think, was more, I think, more influential, which was, I think, some of the, some of the things that you kind of hinted to, to earlier about employee behaviours, which is that, um, you know, when you're trying to understand feedback loops, so clearly there's negative feedback loops and positive feedback loops. Um, and, and we asked the, the business, we said, so what are the, the feedback loops? Um, and um, started off with the negative. And we said, well, we have a, a red and a yellow card system. If you see an observer an unsafe behaviour, you get a yellow card. So you're off-site for the day. So you lose, lose a bit of money. So in your case previously, the bacon sandwich man, could he give you a yellow card or no? Yeah, so, so essentially, yeah, the, the health and safety sort of executive could walk around and, yeah, if you didn't lock the gate, he could say, Bruce, you need to be locking the gates in this. You're not protecting us. You're not protecting, t- protecting yourself. It's a yellow card. Come back Got tomorrow. It. What, um, he sends you home for the day? Yeah, yeah, sends you home for the day. Off-site. No, no pay. Off-site, no pay. Yeah, so okay. so so it's a quite severe severe penal. It gets even worse. You can get a red card, right? Which essentially is, you know, if you're doing something which is perceived as particularly dangerous, um, say Bruce, really sorry, he's a red card. You're not coming back on this site ever. Whatever. Okay. Right. So it's really strong. Okay. Now, now you would you would have thought that those types of you know types of uh, 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 penal sort of systems would be quite a motivation for people not to do these things, but you know. What from what I understand, there's always work to go around. So you might get taken off the site, you know, and they go, okay, well, they've got particular high health and yeah. safety standards. Then you have a day off work and you go into your suboperative and you get another job the next right. day. Right. So it doesn't seem to be that. that yeah. It's just that they, you know, this particular con- you know, business has got very high health and safety standards. Um, so, so it works, but it doesn't work, you know, clearly to the degree that we would want it to work. So we then asked about, well, what's the reward system, the positive reward system? And like most businesses, they have an employee of the month, okay? Um, And essentially, it's this very passive scheme um, that maybe this random person that knows a boss gets something there that doesn't really get that celebrated. So essentially, it's just a waste of money and time. And um, so no one buys into it, no one believes it, and it just sits, sits, I suppose, up there in the ether. So one of the things that we did was we wanted to elevate, essentially, and create kind of this kind of like, I suppose, sense of sort of ego and superiority bias that you have to actually have to pass your health and safety training to get onto the site. Um, So when they pass their training now, they now get given a gold card. So automatically you go, a gold card. And you get that on the first day when you pass your, your site health and safety training. And, uh, but what we did, which was pretty clever, I think, was we, we actually backdated that gold card um, for when they first started working with a particular construction company. So, you know, for me and you, if we'd started on our first day with them, it'd be, you know, 2018, you know, November, you know, the 5th, whatever the date. But for those guys that have been working with us 22 years, you'd actually backdate that. Right. So, you know, it might be like, I don't know, 1996. And all of a sudden, a little bit of ink on a card says that I've been health and safety conscious to these gold level standards since 1996. Right. So the, I suppose the implicit value of a piece of plastic means so much more than a piece of plastic. Because I don't want to lose that. Because I've yeah. been safe for 22 years and it yeah. says so on my card. Similar to an Amex card, member since. And that's where we got the insight from that it has no tangible value, but has some psychological intangible okay. value that you don't want to lose that. What does my gold card get me? Yeah, and so, so what the gold card is, if, if you've been good um, and I've been following the right behaviours, then on a Friday, um, all the gold cards in the canteen are all put into a glass bowl and they pull them out um, and you win stuff. So it's quite exciting. So for the first week, um, the, the guy, uh, so Jeff, he, he won a 55-inch UHD TV just before the World Cup. Okay. 
brilliant, right? That attracts people's attention. Yeah. If you're 25 or 50 and you want to watch the World Cup on, you know, BBC iPlayer and UHD on 55 yeah. inches, you know, I'm going to lock the wheels and I'm going to make sure that I lock the gate. Yeah. Because I might win one of those. Yeah. Now, the beauty of it is that the insight, um, which is often talked about, but I don't think done particularly well, is that fixed rewards aren't as appealing to the brain as random rewards. Okay. So, you know, there's some classic work done by Skinner with pigeons. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with this, where essentially he conditioned pigeons in one environment. Every time they tapped a particular uh, uh, unit, they got one piece of food. They topped twi- tapped twice, they got two pieces of food three times three pieces of food and the pigeons sort of understand the system after a while but they get quite bored of it so they don't actually eat so much he did a similar sort of experiment parallel with the treatment group and he randomized the rewards so they, they go and click the unit once and they get one piece of food they go and click once and they get nothing they go and click twice and they get like 45 pieces of food and then they click twice again they get nothing and then they go and get three times and they get four pieces of food and that was incredibly appealing to the pigeon's brain because it was the anticipation of the reward and not knowing that got them excited um, and these pigeons became incredibly fat okay. so so the, it's well documented about fixed rewards and random variable rewards and there's you know, I've seen some recent stuff in the behavioural science sort of community about no one's executing it that well. Well, I think what we did with this was exact, exactly using that principle done well. So we started to randomise it, so the amount and the nature of the rewards. So it might be £100 worth of Amazon vouchers one week, or it might be 250 of M&S the next week, or it might be free bacon butties for you and your suboperatives for the week. So just randomising and keeping people interested was a key part of it. Um, and we communicated this to the, to the team. Now, the great thing about it is that um, if you lose your gold card for an unsafe behaviour, it's not only you that loses your gold card, it's all of your mates in your suboperative. Right. So you have got some strong peer pressure. So if you get a yellow card, if you, if you, you get, go home. Got, yeah, if you get a yellow card, you go home. Okay, so so you can lose your gold card for something less than... Yeah, so so essentially, so when we introduce the gold card, if they got observed using the first unsafe behaviour, they just lose their gold card. Okay. And and then if it got particularly worse, they then go to yellow and then go to red. And um, But what we found was that um, people didn't want to lose their gold card themselves, but for God, I'm sure you didn't want to lose yours because if you lost it, it meant everyone else didn't get in the draw on a Friday. Yeah. So you might have like 13 of your mates that are all working hard that are looking forward to winning the TV on Friday. And just because you didn't lock a gate, all of them don't get entered into the draw. So it had some strong peer pressure. Now, the interesting dynamic that I don't think we considered in this way, which was the beauty of doing these experiments, is that um, if one of your suboperative friends sees you doing something poor, then they'll support you to call it out to what we were saying before. So they'll say, Bruce, please make sure you lock the gates because we're all going to miss out on the draw. As opposed to more of a penal system, which is don't do that. You're going to hurt yourself or you're going to hurt us. Um, Now, and so therefore people were more likely to call out their other friend's behaviour, going to the grass example, because it was a positive experience, which was keeping everybody in um, and reinforcing it. So imagine you've got 13 mates telling you to do the right thing. Mm. It's a lot better than, actually, I've seen you do the, right, the wrong thing, but I don't want to tell anybody about it. And what was the third intervention? So the third one is, I think, the most interesting. So this is the one I think that captured your imagination. And, um, and we, don't, we can't disentangle these three things, but I think, as you can see, all of these three work, work in... in um, and they're all quite consistent, right? They're yeah, sort of they are, yeah. the same objectives. Same objectives. 
So, so the third one was directly sort of focused on how can we reduce the levels of testosterone um, and, and try and change some hormonal balances. So we looked at the nature of breaks. So I've got uh, uh, some friends that have done some work in the nature of breaks. You know, when do you take a break? How long is the break? What do you do in the break? So I was really, really intrigued by that particular piece of, piece of work. I started to look at when these guys took breaks. So they might take eight or nine breaks a day. You know, some of them for a cup of toilet, cup of tea, chat to, to colleagues about friend works. Otherwise, their lunch break, this type of stuff. So we had a look at the canteen. And the canteen is like a makeshift canteen. So it's not a beautiful, you know, canteen for, you know, 200 people. It might be like 30 people sort of seating at any one time. And it's a construction site. And um, so it was littered, uh, I suppose, with health and safety messages. So we looked at this one wall and it said, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. No don't one do reads this. it, but it has to no be No one there. reads that. Yeah. But it's all up there for compliance, yeah. right? And, um, and it's all tatty, right? And poorly designed. So essentially you couldn't make head and the tail of it. Um, and then we looked at the environment itself. And it wasn't a very social, welcoming, relaxing environment. It just wasn't, you know, essentially it was just quite, you know, functional stuff yeah so we used some psychological frameworks uh, to understand the nature of things like access to natural light you know so have they got enough natural light in this environment which isn't always the case in some construction environments but try to maximize that you know what's good air quality so you do all these kind of like softer factors you know is there plants in the room so is there access to kind of more nature you know it's quite a hard industrial environment can we try to bring that in but the real breakthrough that we had was the the use of i suppose redesigning the walls so we took all of the health and safety messages off the wall so i think that's why some of the people pulled out of the process because they thought that was the wrong thing to do um and we painted the walls a particular colour. And with our perceptual psychological uh, skills, um, you know, colour is, I suppose, one of the least understood. I think it's, to be fair, in terms of how the environmental factors affect our psychology. But there's a growing body of knowledge to which hopefully we've added to, which about different colours can have different effects on people um, based on what they experience in nature, but also sort of through, through their lives. And, and we were in, intrigued and, I'd, you know, quite a lot of our, our, our work is taking an academic principle and practically applying it in a, in a work and place environment. And I think that's the difference with us, that we're not trying to prove a psychological principle because academics are brilliant at that. Yeah. What we're trying to do is say that is a brilliant piece of work. How can we practically apply it in the environment? And one of these was, um, uh, you know, uh, like yourself, you read a lot of books. And um, but one of the books that I read quite a long time ago was Drunk Tank Pink from uh, from Adam. And and you sort of read that book by who? Sorry, Adam Alter. Okay. So, so so it's interesting. So you read you read read the book. And he doesn't talk so much about Drunk Tank Pink. He talks about a lot of, lot of other environmental factors that, that subconsciously change our behaviour. But it really captured my imagine, imagination. And um, so you know the way that the psychology works is that there was an experiment done by psychologists. It's in the uh, Navy. And what they did is they essentially were doing something similar to kind of like a strength test, like just with simple like sort of clamps that you would use within your, your hand so you'd squeeze it. Um, and they exposed these particular individuals to different coloured cards. So they showed them different spectrum uh, of colours. Um, um, and what they started to find was when they showed the pink card, actually when they were clasping these sort of uh, wrist sort of, sort of clamps, they didn't seem to be as strong. Which was fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So that was the initial insight. Um, and, um, and that was done in an academic environment. We don't know why, but it happened. 
And then that captured the imagination of two, uh, essentially, uh, administrators within the prison service in, in the US, um, Baker and Miller. And essentially what they th then did is took that insight and then started to paint some of their cells with this particular type of pink. Okay. Um, and what they found was, um, when they measured it, albeit in kind of maybe not as maybe as academically robust as some of the experiments that we're seeing, see, uh, are seeing now, but they saw some short-term drops in aggression levels right. um, of cellmates. Short-term. So, yeah, short-term. So right. 15, 20 minutes. And, um, but it, it worked. In, in their head, you know, so there may well have been some misattribution, a bit yep. of confirmation yep. bias, but in their head they did an experiment that, that had worked. And, um, and then, you know, rolled out. And then sort of following on from that, there were some interesting instances. So there was an American football team in Iowa, college team, that painted the changing rooms of all of their uh, opposition. They painted that, oh. this particular Baker Miller pink and drunk tank pink to reduce the levels of aggression in US college football players to give them that competitive advantage. Um, and recently, I think Norwich City have done exactly the same. What, in the away changing room? In the away changing Amazing room. Amazing work. And um, so, so that's quite interesting, I think. Now, uh, so that was kind of the Baker Miller drunk tank pink. So we took that Pantone reference, the hex code, and essentially painted the three walls pink. Um, we also did some uh, some work about normalising um, different ways of working, which I think was critical as well, which was um, when we talked to the guys, um, we said, well, why do you take these risks sometimes? And they said, it gets in the way of the work. And we were going, yeah, but the work isn't just putting the stuff in the ceiling and the floor. The work is planning and preparing. So we normalised planning, preparing and performing as three different elements of work. So if someone questioned what you were doing, you know, in and around the either construction site or in the cafe, in, in the canteen, you could say, well, I'm planning because I know at this time of the day, there's 87% of us are planning for the day. So it normalises non-work. Right in a way that legitimises that type of work, which they felt that they couldn't legitimise. So we put these posters up too, which, which talked about normalising, planning and preparing for the performance, which was actually being up and down the scaffolding towers. So we put those three interventions in. Four weeks pre-post, uh, pre-measurement. Uh, one of our psychologists, uh, or two of, two of them over time, um, essentially spent each day for an hour a day, randomised across the day, randomised across the floors, would take observational measurements of these unsafe behaviours. Um, and uh, they, were, they didn't know, people didn't know who they were, they just knew that they were here to improve the well-being of the staff, so they didn't know they were actually measuring anything. So in their pockets hidden, they had two clickers, one for material movement, unsafe behaviours, and one for um, working at height, because we know that when people are observed, they're more likely to actually exhibit the right behaviour, and as soon as you move on, they don't. So we did the pre-measurements, and then we did 12 weeks worth of ex exactly the same uh, data collection, and then we then started to um, uh, normalise that for the type of work and the number of people that were on site at that particular day to make sure that we had balanced measurement. And, and what we found uh, was that there was a significant, and I'd say a transformational shift in terms of these unsafe behaviours. So we saw a minus 82% uh, in unsafe behaviours in working at height. So it's just transformational. Right, minus, minus 82%. 82%. So it was down from 100 to 80? Yeah, essentially, yeah. And then, and then in the material movements, that's thing, moving things around on trolleys, it went down to minus 93%. Jeez. And the, the significance level, so when we do the statistical testing on the, I suppose, the variability of the data pre and post, there was a 1 in 69 chance that the 82% was due to chance, and it was a 1,400 chance um, on the minus 93%. 
I think that's really, really interesting in terms of the way that when you're practically applying behavioural science within organisations to change behaviour, is people often say, oh yeah, it's going to be difficult to measure. And I, you know, I would really, really sort of stress that people don't believe you. You know, if you said, look, we're going to prevent falls by painting pink walls, they'd laugh you out of town. Yeah. If you say to them, we've reduced unsafe behaviours by minus 82% and minus 93% with a probability due to chance of 1 in 69 and 1 in 4,000, they, they stand up and take notice. Tell me this, you know, as you're going through there and you mentioned the pigeons and the novelty, do you think some of these things might have a short impact? So you just completely need to be sort of recalibrating. So if people are familiar with the canteen being pink and then... In three months' time, do you need to freshen it up so, to, so you lose that novelty? What's your take on that? So, so I think for, for certainly when, you know, the principle of, of random variableness is there's a consistency in, in that in itself, yeah. which is you've got to consistently be random. Um, so, um, and that's the thing that appeals to us on an ongoing basis. Yeah. So people would never get bored of that because it's random. And that's, that's that. So it might sound a little bit of getting out of jail, but I think, I think yeah, that yeah, holds yeah. true. In terms of like influences on our in, in, environment, um, yeah, for sure. I think there's some nudges that um, you look at them and you go, is that really sustainable and, and is it scalable? And I think sometimes it depends on the nature of the intervention. And I think in this case, um, you know, when you start to investigate, why do certain colours do the things that they do? Um, and how, is, how does that happen? And I think when we were talking about this initially, you know, you sort of probe with me to go, well, why is that? And what's interesting is the academic literature identifies that there may well be a causal relation between pink and actually lower levels of aggression and, and lower levels of, of, of um, things like anxiety, etc. It does reduce the, those things, but we don't know why. Right. Now, um, and, and I think in a lot of colour, it is absolutely down to, to nature. Um, so when you look at things that are red and things that are, you know, orange and yellow, you know, um, they have certain inferences. Um, and, you know, so, you know, for this particular uh, construction client, we've actually given them a league table of colours now about what colours do. And red is amazing at attracting attention, okay? But it's very, very good at raising levels of anxiety and blood pressure. Um, and um, so if you want to make people feel particularly paying attention and maybe a little bit anxious, it's a great colour. But that wasn't our sort of inference from, from this. The way that we understand pink is that, interestingly, it may not be something that's hardwired, essentially from our f first genetic principle. It may well be uh, something that's learned um, because the colour pink is predominantly in culture today, may not be in the future, but predominantly linked to maybe more female traits. Okay, so, and, and female traits tend to be more based around caring, uh, sharing, more empathetic traits. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of work been done around um, uh, pink and caring, etc., which is, you know, the levels of testosterone may be modulated and, and things like oxytocin, which, you know, some people call the trust and caring molecule, um, that, they, that may be increased. But that's, I think, where there's more, more work to be done. There's no studies that basically say this isn't hardwired as a colour, this is, and this is learnt over time, that's hypothesised. But I, th I think that would hold true. Interesting thing would be to see where we go, you know, for the future. Yeah. Because, you know, you know, in terms of the way that, you know, we're not trying to pigeonhole people into certain brackets, you know, some of maybe these these psychological influences may, may well not be conditioned in that way over time. Yeah. That pink may well just be a far more neutral rather than feminine yeah. culture, so may not work. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm just interested if someone listens to this and they think, oh, that's interesting. I'd never considered behavioral science as a way to change some of the things that happen in my work. Mm -hmm. And that might be training people need to do, or it might be behavior that people need. And, uh, but where would they start? So obviously they could contact you, but if they were, they were thinking about this themselves, should they read certain books? What, what's the, um, it's a, re- it's a really good question. Um, and the reason why I hesitate a little bit, um, a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing. Right. Um, so, um, as this very nascent sort of uh, community of people that are interested in this area is starting to grow, there's some concern that behavioural science practised by people that don't fully understand the consequences could potentially have right. negative impacts. Um, and, I, and I agree with that. Yeah. It's a big action, isn't it, to paint your canteen a different colour. You don't really know what you're doing. You don't really know why you're doing it. Well, well I, I suppose the, the interesting thing would be that when we are considering uh, doing this type of work, it's based on scientific methods and encompassed within that are some ethical uh, considerations, I think. Um, and and I, think, I, think, I think that's the difference is that that, that this sometimes this, this work can often seem as quite subtle and oblique yeah. and quite small, but can sometimes have massive effects as, as we've just heard. And, and sometimes that might have negative consequences which you haven't considered, which in some cases may be irreversible. Right. Uh, certainly. So, so I think one of the things that, 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 we, that we adhere to would be for sure, you know, some of the best books. So, you know, the, the best books. So uh, I'll kind of do a quick run through of kind of like where I see the, the literature. Um, so without straying into the academic journals, because I think that's most probably the, the certainly the, the end, end, you know, end end step. So um, 
often referred to as pop sociology and pop economics, which I fundamentally disagree. I think it's brilliant. I think it would be anything by Malcolm Gladwell or anything by uh, uh, the Free Economics guys. I think is a brilliant introduction. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely fantastic. You know, for me, brilliantly written, some very, very counterintuitive bleak sort of ways of thinking that capture people's imaginations in a way that the academics could never have dreamed of. And ironically, even though it's sometimes looked at, I think, in, in maybe poor terms, I think that has been the literature that's actually created the world we're now in. And then Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely, Nudge by uh, Richard Thaler Cass Sunstein, um, uh, you've got Influence by uh, Dr. Cialdini. Those are the types of books that I think um, start to get you thinking about more scientific methods based on, on core psychological principles. And then the final book, which I do uh, uh, think you should read right at the end, is Thinking Fast and Slow by Professor Daniel Kahneman. And um, it's just a, a, essentially a long book to read. Um, so, um, uh, you know, it takes about a year to read, I think. Uh, and um, there's some, you know, I mean, I've been very, very pri- privileged to have met, you know, uh, Professor Kahneman, Professor Cialdini, Professor Thaler, Professor Dan Ariely, um, and they're all am- amazing, amazing, amazing guys. And um, so, but they've been doing it for a long, long yeah. time, and, and especially Professor Kahneman. So, so that would be kind of the literature, and I'd read it in that order. I think, um, you know, the the one thing that I would really, really sort of ask of anyone sort of listening to go, I'd really like to try that, would be to say that um, treat it as a science, um, treat it as an art, um, and bring those two worlds together. But you're fundamentally talking to people's subconscious and their psychology, so so have a duty of care. Mm. So one of the things that behavioural scientists do is they do a pre mortem. So what are the things that could go wrong, um, and what are the consequences thereof, yeah. and uh, apply a particular risk profile to that, what are the chances of this happening, what could be the scale uh, of this particular issue, and is that something that we want to essentially uh, manage or, or, or do we not want to go with the experiment itself? So uh, I think that, and then also as well, post-experiment, uh, are there any uh, unintended consequences? Um, so there's, a, there's quite, I mean, I, I heard it from one of the professors at um, London, uh, London School of Economics, about unintended consequences of, of things. Um, and this was um, a teenage pregnancy uh, intervention. I don't know if you've heard of this. Yeah, go Quite on. So, um, so there was a teenage pregnancy intervention done uh, by, by the government, um, one of their providers. And essentially, um, it was, you know, the teenage pregnancy was rampant. So there's a, there was a programme created, um, and essentially it was brilliant. And so amazing collateral, uh, very, very well funded, very well resourced, um, and, and they essentially created a, a, a number of teenage girls that actually had been pregnant themselves and trained them to go into schools and talk to, to children yeah. um, about the consequences thereof. Um, and so, the, so essentially the, girl, the girls go in and they, and they, they, they do this work um, and the girls listen and, and some of the boys, I guess, too. Anyway, so uh, what happens as a result is that teenage pregnancies go up. Now, now what's interesting is when they started to try and understand post the intervention from these girls, like, you know, I don't think there's a direct, you can't say, well, you saw this and pregnancy, you're pregnant, you got pregnant, but they looked at, you know, uh, the correlation between the two. And, and the feedback they were getting just fascinating. So essentially, these girls were like 12, 13, 14. And because this girl essentially had been picked to come and present to them, she was well-dressed, she had brilliant assets, she was very, very confident. So these girls looked at this girl and went, she's done all right. Right. 
It's a bit like that heroin poster in the 1980s where the lad was quite look, good looking. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it is. I mean, this is the interesting thing I think about people's behaviour, is that you know people are, are strange. Like like people are inconsistent. You know, they'll order one particular drink at certain time. You know, when they're out with their mates on a Friday night, and they'll order a different drink on on a Saturday. You know, with their their partner. And it's just really interesting about the decision-making sort of frameworks on those things that, you know, they're just inconsistent, Mm. you know. So it's like, you know, you might like gin and tonic, but you're out with your mates on a Friday night and everyone's drinking Stella. You have a Stella. You don't want a Stella. Yeah. You want a gin and tonic, but you don't want to be that arse that says, actually, I'd like a gin and tonic. Ooh, you don't want that. So you actually are inconsistent with your... Preferences. Whereas if you maybe out with your partner and stuff like, you know what, I really want a fever tree and a gin and tonics. So that's yeah. what I'm going to have. And you go, it's just, just strange. So, so I think I think that's that's kind of like the conundrum. I think that sometimes when we do these psychological experiments, however much we try to control the context in which they are done, um, what we're now finding in psychology is there's a replication crisis. Um, and um, I've heard from some commentators say actually it's a massive opportunity because if we can start to stress test some of these hypotheses, we may start to accelerate or deepen the learning or debunk the learning. Right. Which I think is is pretty fascinating because yeah there's a lot lots of other factors rather than the ones that you can control in an experiment a lot of the time especially in the real world in a laboratory for sure you know you can control for a lot of things but when you start to go in the practical applied world there's so many factors that are out of your control that you you know that essentially yeah some things may or may not work at certain times um so so yeah so you know with relation to like organizations and, and employees um you know the duty of care is incredibly strong yeah 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 so you know when you are approaching these you know one thing that you know would be for sure definitely read the literature um but there's some great behavioral economics businesses that are starting to appear with all different types of specialisms so, so your overall take is that by all means have a fascination with it be aware that sometimes if you're staging something that's high risk or, you know, has employee well-being at its heart, sometimes chat to an expert is, is not a bad step. I, I think so. I mean, the first thing would be chat to an expert. But the second thing would be to create inner proof in the organisation. Because every organisation is different. I mean, the ironic thing is that often they're not. The behavioural problems are the same. Um, but but everyone likes to think that their business is different, the way you behave is different, the problems are different. So when you start to export and tra- translate case studies from elsewhere, people find that quite hard. Yeah. So, so what we often find is, is create the inner proof. Because if you can create the inner proof in your organisation, then it's hard to dispute. Mm. You go, well, it is, it's really interesting because I didn't believe it was going to work. But we did this thing and we had these 10 people and they were rewarded differently. And what happened was they interacted brilliantly. And actually we measured it over three and then six and then nine months and it continued to do it. And actually the cost of it compared to the ROI was it's like a tenth of what mm. any other program we've ever done before. Now, I know it sounds strange, but it is working. And then that's from someone that you've worked with for 20 years that you know is heavily sceptical of anything sceptical of anything new. You go, well, I think there's something in this. Mm. So, so having pilots and in the proof in organisations is essential, I think, to get, get traction. Um, and that's what we're finding. So, you know, part of the way that we interact with companies, as you described, would be please don't experiment with people's psychology by yourself if, you, if you've not got some form of expertise, either in the academic or practically applied space. Um, and start to start to try things mm. but do it in a controlled way do it in a way which is robust and do it with you've got a duty of care for the for the individual <laughs> 
Well, thanks for listening today. A really interesting excursion into the world of behavioural science. There's, there's definitely going to be a lot of things you're interested in at the end of this. So I've tried to include some of those things in the show notes. Always welcome people getting in touch with me as well. You can tweet me or you can link into me. And I'm always keen to hear what you've, you've got to say, people's opinions. Uh, next week is Adam Kay. So I had a lovely chat with the author of the funniest and uh, I think most timely book of the year. This is going to hurt. And so a chat to him next week. As ever, all of the episodes are available on our website and that's eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. I'm very grateful for your time today. Speak soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.